0: revelation chapter 2 verse 1 here in just a moment or two now the seven letters to the seven churches revelation chapters 2 and 3 sit in this absolutely incredible context of the book of revelation and everything else that is inside of this book Now, when someone says, you know, or someone thinks, I'm going to begin to read through the book of Revelation, or someone says, we're going to start teaching through this book, we immediately get excited about all the fantastic things that are inside of this book that we've read before or heard before, don't know exactly what to make of it. And then we hit these seven letters to the seven churches, and we think, really, I have to read these to get to all the good stuff? That's usually how we approach the book of Revelation. But these seven letters are critical because they ground the book in real lives, in real churches, in the situations that real Christians find themselves in. Jesus told us in chapter 1, he told John the Revelator, I will show you what must take place. A lot of it is kind of hard to take. It is dramatic, and it is difficult sometimes. And sometimes it is, quite honestly, hard to understand. But all of it ends with the eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ in perfect justice, in perfect love, in perfect relationship with God's children. And that kind of truth, that grand and glorious truth, is written to real Christians with real jobs, with real families, and with real pressures in the world around them. So these letters ground for us the rest of what happens inside of this book. And we learn very clearly, uh, Clearly, and we learn early on, if we're ready to take Jesus seriously, we're ready to endure whatever comes. As Jesus is going to tell us, This all of this must take place, including... The coming of my final and eternal kingdom in which I will conquer over all. So if we're ready to take this Jesus seriously, we're being taught in this book that we're going to be able to endure whatever comes. So these letters, as they were written, as the text describes these letters, they are sent from Christ himself to the churches themselves and to the angels who preside over those churches. Now, there's a lot of interesting things going on there, but for our purposes, we have to realize this. That thought, that Jesus writes a letter to the angel that presides over the church in this city, to the individuals who live in the church in this city, it is an extension of the picture that we received in chapter 1, in which Jesus holds the churches in his hands, lives in the midst of the churches. Christ has never left any of them alone. Christ is in the midst of His church still today. God's divine lieutenants, His messengers, His angels are still at work in the church today. So what is this letter about? What kinds of things are these seven letters about? First is this, and this is a beautiful truth inside of these letters, the way it happens. Jesus knows His church. Not just His church, universal, universal. But Jesus knows his local churches. He is in the midst of them when they gather. Every letter has its own unique introduction. And it is unique to every church. And it clearly puts that church inside of its own context. Its city, its culture, what that church needs to hear from Jesus Christ. And then when the body of each of these letters... Begin. Some of them are a little bit longer. Some of them are actually quite short. But when the body of the letter um, begins, they all begin the same way. Jesus says, I know. I <laughs> love that thought. I know what you're doing right. I know where you're falling short. I know what is happening to you. In some cases, Jesus even mentions names. I know what's going on with you jesus sees his church clearly he speaks to his church clearly he engages us and sometimes he even confronts us with what we're not doing right but jesus knows his church he knows us this morning and then this comes clear i think through these letters as well our setting is a given our response is a choice The setting that we are in, the culture that we are in here and now, however much we would like to change it, where we are here and now, God has placed us. In God's sovereignty, every one of us is in this culture now. Our kids are growing up in this culture now. God knows what he's doing with us. God knows what he is doing with the passage of time. He is not making a mistake. His church, you and I, are here on purpose right now. Are we ready then to hear His voice, to step up, to proclaim the truth, to endure as we're going to hear this morning in truth and love? Are we ready to do that? So our setting is what it is. It's a given. And our response now to Jesus Christ becomes the choice that we walk in in endurance. And then we're going to see, especially inside of this letter, that you and I, we are people of both truth and love. Truth and love, this very simple but very profound and powerful combination that exists in the church of Jesus Christ and must exist in the church of Jesus Christ, is given to us in this letter that we're going to read this morning. This is not an either-or decision, Um, either truth or love. Lots of truth, just enough love, or lots of love, and let's not think too much about truth. It's not an either-or, it is a both-and command from God and expectation from God, from the churches that He dwells in, that He is at work inside of, that we are people of both love and truth. So let's read this first letter, this first letter written to the book, or excuse me, to the city of Ephesus, the church in Ephesus. Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus writes, The words of Him who holds the seven stars in His right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false." I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown wary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. The church will die unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God cool letter. This letter is written to the church that is there in the city of Ephesus. When you do a little bit of New Testament work about this particular church and this issue, there is a chance that there are up to seven letters in the New Testament that were written to the Ephesian church or primarily to the Ephesian church. The first of the seven I'll give you. It's the book of Ephesians. Very good. It's the book of Ephesians. That's right. First and second Timothy. Um, Paul writes to Timothy, who when he writes those letters, he is the pastor of the church in Ephesus. There's a very good chance, as far as church history tells us, that the Apostle John, John the Revelator, spends the last years of his life primarily as a pastor leader in the city of Ephesus. So when he writes first, second and third John, he's probably writing to groups of people in that church or the surrounding region that he knows very well. So we, and then we've got this letter here in Revelation chapter 2. So there might be up to seven letters written to this particular church inside of the New Testament. Now, why is that important? I think it's important because how Jesus describes himself, introduces himself to this particular church. We discover in the New Testament and we discover in church history as well that the church in the city of Ephesus was actually quite influential And it was the fountainhead of a lot of other churches. You go and you read some of the story of the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, especially Acts 19 and 20, and you read some of his other letters, you put a little bit of that life history together. Paul spent at least two years in the city of Ephesus using it as his home base to plant churches in the surrounding region. So the church in the city of Ephesus is an influential church. It's a strong church. It has people, the influence of people like Paul and John and Timothy inside of it. It can claim itself as a kind of spiritual mother church to a lot of the other churches that are growing in the surrounding region, maybe even some of those that are in the rest of the letters in Revelation 2 and 3. So there's a lot going on in this church. It's an influential church and a powerful church. So Jesus introduces himself like this. I am the one who holds all of the churches in his hand. I am the one who is in the midst of all the churches. I am the center, the foundation, the stability. I am the strength of all of the churches, not you. There's a chance that the church in Ephesus was beginning to feel like we're the church at Ephesus. We're the mother church. We're the mothership. And Jesus says, I'm the foundation of the church. I just want to remind you, people. I'm the one at the center. I'm the one who's the sovereign Lord over all of the churches. So Jesus then tells this church, and again, every letter, the body begins and it starts like this I know this about you. I know your works, I know your toil. And I know your patient endurance as you have dealt with false teaching, with false teachers, and you haven't put up with it. You have defended me. You have defended the truth of the things that you have learned in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you've toiled for it. And there's been patient endurance there. The church at Ephesus is doing a lot right And most of it, appears, has to do with holding the line against false teaching. So much of what we dealt with when we dealt with this topic going through the book of Jude. Dealing with what false teaching looks like and then opposing it. And I love the language that he uses, Jesus uses here. I know your toil, it's a lot of work. And I know your patient endurance. It really does take a lot of work And it really does take a lot of patience to do this kind of thing. False teaching is slippery. False teaching is attractive to the human heart. False teaching is always wrapped in a candy coating shell. It goes down so easily. And so it takes time. It takes patience. It takes teaching. It takes guidance. It takes rebuke. It takes confrontation where it is required. And Jesus says, I see you've done this. I see if you work, how you have worked at it. How you have, he says twice in that passage, how you have endured at it. See, the city of Ephesus is in fact itself a large and influential city. It's a metropolitan city. It's a trade city, so it's an international city as well. And there's a lot of pagan religion in the city of Ephesus. And most of these people were actually saved out of one of those pagan religions. Again, you go back and you read Acts 19 and 20, the story of the growth of the church in Ephesus. And you're going to find that uh, one of the primary pagan religions there was the worship of the goddess Diana or of Artemis. And in fact, at one point, the opposition against the church gets so strong that a few ringleaders gather, um, uh, apparently, hundreds if not thousands of people from the city into their open auditorium, and they're opposing the church by shouting over and over again, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Over, and they're seeking the persecution of the church, maybe even the death of some of its leaders. And there are a lot of these things in this large city of Ephesus. There are a lot of religious options. There are a lot of pagan religions going on out there around them. But the church at Ephesus has avoided that. And they have kept themselves away from it. And they even have in the city of Ephesus, we know this historically, uh, a statue and a temple to uh, the Roman Caesar. There is in the city of Ephesus a lot of Caesar worship, which is worship of the state. Now you and I may not confront a lot of A lot of individuals who worship ancient pagan and Roman deities. But one of the pagan religions that's growing in our culture is the worship of the state. The city of Ephesus, the church in the city of Ephesus, has to resist all of that, has to oppose all of that. And Jesus says, I see you've done it, and you've done it well for a long time. He even says something else interesting that I think we need to make sure is in the backs of our minds. Because this is also still an issue in the church of Jesus Christ. You have recognized those who call themselves apostles but are not. You've exposed them and you have, you know, sort of realized that they are false teachers. There are still individuals who name themselves as apostles in the worldwide church. And we have to be very careful with that. The role of apostle in the New Testament is a very specific role that is not actually given to very many people. That title's not given to very many. But there are still many in our world today that appropriate appropriate that title for themselves, and they turn that into um, a self-promoting sense of their own authority. So we have to be careful with that title because it it still gets thrown around so much. Now, the church in Ephesus was warned about this when the Apostle Paul was with them. So, he's leaving the city of Ephesus probably for the last time. In Acts chapter 20, Paul's uh, address to the elders in the church of Ephesus there is just beautiful. It's powerful. But here's part of what Paul tells uh, the leaders in Ephesus in Acts twenty. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Take care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. This is how precious the church is. It was paid for. It was created by the blood of Jesus Christ. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves, those who would actually devour and destroy the church, will come in among you not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So he warns these leaders, pay attention to the church. Shepherd the flock. It is a precious and beautiful thing. Hold the line. And it appears that the church in Ephesus took this to heart. And they were right to do it, Jesus says. Watch out for this stuff. It even means in this text, and this strikes us maybe as a little bit strange. It even means hating what God hates. He says in verse 6, You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. That may strike us a little funny about hatred, Jesus saying something like this. But there it is. Who were the Nicolaitans? It's a little hard to tell, but the best guess is that they were what we theologically call antinomians. So there's your 50-cent theological term for the day, antinomianism. Now, that word just simply means against the law. These were people in the Church of Jesus Christ, and they were active very early in the Church of Jesus Christ, who believed that the law of God and His moral standard did not apply to them. They were saved, they were on their way to heaven when they died, and the law, the moral law of God, did not apply to them. This is a falsehood that is still alive and at work inside of the church today. I'm saved, I'm on my way to heaven, and the moral law of God no longer applies to me. But what does Jesus say about how he feels about that teaching? I hate it. That's fascinating. God hates that idea. Why? Because it tears people away from Him and convinces them that they are fine without the law of God. That is an inevitable path to destruction. Not just eternal destruction, but destruction along the way. And God hates it because it destroys the people that He loves. So get this, this is important. Our souls are calibrated the right way when we love what God loves and we hate what God hates. This is actually a fairly common teaching in Scripture. You can find this language, especially in the Old Testament prophets. Our souls are calibrated the right way when we love what God loves and hate what God hates. Our souls are off when we love what God hates and hate what God loves. So dealing with false teaching was right. It was commendable. And Jesus says, I've seen it. You've worked at it. It's taken a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, and you've done it. But it led them down a path that wasn't at this point reflecting the Christ of their salvation, the Jesus who saved them what originally happened to them when they came to know Jesus Christ, when He changed their lives. They were doing one thing really well, but then they were blowing it in another direction. Remember, as we begin to think about what the Ephesians were doing wrong, remember the book ends from the book of Jude. The book of Jude began with I'm writing to you to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Contend for it. The Ephesians were doing that well. The book of Jude ended with, I need you to show mercy, show mercy, show mercy. The truth of what Christ has given us, contend for it, hold to it. Weed out false teaching. Then I need you to show mercy to people who doubt, to people who struggle. I need you showing mercy. Simply being right is not everything, but truth with mercy, truth with love is much closer to the whole thing. So here's what Jesus tells them here in verse 4, but I have this against you, that you abandoned the love that you had at first. They were abandoning. They were letting go. They had forgotten their first love. And God actually considers this a significant moral and spiritual failure. It isn't just, you know, when you have time, work on love a little bit. He considers this a significant problem. And so it seems that in their zeal for the truth of Jesus Christ, they have lost their passion for Jesus... Their love for the gospel, their love for others who need to know the gospel of Jesus Christ, and so their souls have grown askew. They've gotten out of proportion, truth and no love. So we need to make sure we understand this and how this works and why it is so important. God requires both of us, both of this from us, truth and love. In fact, in the letter to the Ephesians, Paul writes this. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. This is how we do it. We speak the truth, but we do it in love. And this is actually part of our maturity, what it means for us to grow up into the image of Jesus Christ. Right? So this, this is critical for us. Truth without love is cold orthodoxy. Love without truth is fuzzy falsehood. Cold orthodoxy or fuzzy falsehood. Here's what I mean by that. If we're not careful, so if we go down one of these paths and we are just all truth and no love, the the kind of mistake the Ephesian church was making, if we're not careful, here's what happened if we're just truth and no love. God becomes an idea, and people become idiots or enemies. God becomes an idea that we have to defend instead of a person that we love or someone whom we want to proclaim to the rest of the world. He becomes an idea that we must defend against all comers and make sure that everybody knows that this is true. Now, that's great, but of course it has to be balanced with love. So if it's just truth, God becomes an idea... And people become idiots. They don't understand. They don't get it. Or they become our enemies. They oppose the truth of Jesus Christ. So we have to squash them. We have to get rid of them. This is what happens if we go too far down this path of truth without love. But if we try to correct that by swinging too far in the other direction, people become perfect and God becomes the enemy. Now listen to this for a second. If we're all love and no truth, and this is just how it happens, and it's happened this way for 2,000 years, and it continues to happen every single week, I listen to a pastor, a theologian, say these kinds of things. It is the, one of the oldest heresies in the church. People become perfect, and God becomes the enemy. People are no longer sinners who need to repent. People are no longer sinners who in their nature are enemies of God. They are basically good creatures who should just be given the opportunity to become their authentic selves. Get out of their way. Let them become who they want to become. They are basically good and perfect things. The bad guy in the equation is God. Why would such a mean God do such cruel things to such good people? You see, that's the falsehood of all love and no truth. We neglect the righteousness of God, we neglect the righteousness of God, and we superimpose God's righteousness on people. We neglect the sinfulness of people, and we superimpose the sinfulness of people onto God. People become the good guys in the story, and God becomes the bad guy in the story. So, man, getting these things out of balance creates all kinds of problems for the church. So, Jesus commands, he demands both from us. We care about the truth because we are learning to love God. And so we defend His glory and we defend the truth and the power of His word and of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Himself. We care about the truth because we love God. And we're learning to love people because all of us are sinners in need of a Savior. All of us are in need of those saving truths. So we can never lose sight of our first love. He's, and this, it's a powerful thing, especially for someone who comes to Christ maybe even a little bit later in life. Sometimes that later in life um, conversion sticks with people in powerful ways, and it is a passion that lives inside of them. Remember what it was like when you first knew Jesus Christ. Remember this, he says, So we can never lose sight of our first love, the passion of our salvation, how God transformed our lives, the greatness of who God is, and our commission to go and make disciples of all the nations. So to fix this, what does God want them to do? It's actually really straightforward. Remember and repent. Remember and repent. You and I need to be absolutely honest with God and with ourselves about what we have lost in our walk with Jesus Christ and to turn back around and to refind those things. Now remember, when Jesus says repent, he's not talking to a bunch of people who don't know him. He's talking to the church in the city of Ephesus. So it's entirely appropriate for Jesus Christ to tell the church in the city of Colorado Springs in the building that we call Living Hope Church, remember and repent. Remember and repent. Biblically, the idea of remembering is so much more than just drawing something back to mind, like we're answering a, a, a true-false uh, question on a task. Oh, I recall that detail. I think I'm going to get this one right. To remember is to push us into action. That's the biblical notion of remembering. We remember so that we can do in repentance to turn back around and to face back toward Jesus Christ. And how serious is it if they do not remember or repent? Jesus says, if you don't do this, I'm going to actually take that lampstand away and the church will die. Every now and then you guys just kind of get curmudgeon Phil Steiger. Churches are dying left and right. One of the reasons I am motivated to do something like I'm doing on Tuesday night with a study on the remnant and how Scripture handles the notion of the remnant is that churches are just falling off the edge of the map all over the place right now. Pastors are doing it. Christians are doing it. Churches are doing it. Remember, remember, remember. And repent where we've gone wrong. Repent. Come back to me, Jesus says. The truth of God is life. And the love of God motivates us to reveal that life to other people. So Jesus says this as he moves on with them. If you read through these seven letters, there are several phrases, several thoughts that are going to be repeated one way or another in all of these letters. One of them is, I know. I know you. I see you. Another is, if you have an ear to hear, I need you to listen to what I am saying. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, he says in the beginning of verse 1. So it's another universal thought in all seven of these letters Jesus wants his people to hear his voice. It's a powerful image because it is this paradox that forces us to wrestle with what exactly does that mean. There are plenty of people who have physical ears that work just fine. Their minds and their brains are wired just right. They understand all of the vocabulary. They understand the word of God. They understand the things that they physically hear. But their spirits are miswired and they never understand or comprehend or put into practice what they actually hear. They have ears, but they're not getting it. They're not hearing it. So Jesus implores with His church. The Old Testament prophets implore with the people of God, if you have an ear, hear what the Spirit says to His church today. There are a lot of ways, a lot of ways in which we grow deaf to the voice of God. Deaf ears are not necessarily those ears that just physically do not work. Sometimes we are deaf because we have too many other sounds entering our ears. There's too much other noise. There's white noise. There's too much else going on entering our souls and entering our brains. And so we can't hear the voice of God. We hear everybody else's voices. We're motivated by the way that they say we should do life but we're missing the voice of God because there's too much going on. Deaf ears sometimes are just attracted to every other voice but the voice of God. We simply don't think anymore that God has anything worth saying. So why would we listen if we think that He just has nothing to say about life anymore? We grow deaf because we have prioritized all of the wrong voices That enter our circle, enter our ears, enter our souls, enter our eyes. So Jesus says, if if you have ears, I need you to hear. I need you to be open to what the Spirit is actually saying to you right now. Now what does this kind of thing, making sure that we're hanging on to both truth and love, We read this language of endurance. We read this language of conquering in this letter. What does this have to do with you and me enduring today or walking in a way that Christ says is conquering or overcoming in our world today? You may or may not have noticed that our culture right now is moving in a self-destructive fashion. It is is moving in such a way that it's just beginning to throw itself right off of a bunch of cliffs. And it's taking as many people with it as it possibly can. It's a self-destructive direction. There is this rising social and political point of view that is profoundly contrary to both the truth and love that there is in Jesus Christ, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, in God's word from beginning to end. It is it's profoundly contradictory to all of it. This social and political idea that keeps rising to the surface and gaining more and more cultural power among us, critical theory, critical race theory, wokeism, identity politics, friends is moral regression. It is not moral progression, it is moral regression. We are actually being told now to judge people based on the color of their skin, on their gender, and their sexuality. It wasn't that long ago when we were told, don't you dare judge anybody based on the color of their skin or of their gender, and on and on it goes, but now, we're being told this is the only way to judge people. If you pay as much attention to the news as I do, first of all, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you probably saw something that just came to the surface in the last 24 to 48 hours. There are whistleblower documents. People are taking pictures of the Zoom calls and meetings that they're forced to be a part of. And what's coming out now in corporates and in uh, federal in a city and state employee diversity training, is actually training about how to be less white. Now, you put any other ethnicity inside of that phrase, and we just may as well line you up against the wall and just shoot you now. But we're actually being taught, this is how you judge people who have certain skin colors, and it's not based on their inherent worth. It's based on this ideology that is directly contrary to the truth and the love of Jesus Christ. Friends, the more I dig into this, the more I read their own words, their own books, their own articles, and people who try to understand what they write, there is no forgiveness, there is no grace inside of this worldview, there is only anger, there is only division, and there is self-hatred, and there is drive for a very particular kind of vengeance in this worldview. Now, because this worldview has so much emotional and cultural power behind it right now, it is very tempting to get on board. It is full of, or at least the language is full of, good intentions, fixing things that have gone wrong in the past or may still be wrong amongst us now. It's full of that good intentional language. And so there's this thrust, this temptation to go along with it, maybe even to go along to get along. But if you don't get on board with it, you know you're going to face opposition, especially if you're part of a corporation that's going to put you through this kind of training, or part of a public school system, or whatever the case may be. You know you're going to face this. You're going to deal with this. You're going to have to figure it out. So it is incredibly important for the Christian to make sure that we are grounded in truth. Because we need to be able to ferret out what is wrong with worldviews, but to be grounded in love as well. To recognize that every one of these people who promote a, promote a destructive worldview are image bearers for whom Jesus died. We have to be these kinds of people right now. Jesus told the church at Ephesus. I know the kind of hard work that it takes to do this. I see your toil. I see your patient endurance day after day, week after week, month after month. So, friends, listen. Patient endurance requires that we resist the pressure to buy into a worldview that contradicts the core truths of the Christian faith. So, we learn to ask ourselves the question in this worldview what is sin? What is sin? Who are the sinners in this worldview? Where's grace? Where is grace in this worldview? Is it the same as the grace that we read in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Is it the same kind of grace that we read in Ephesians chapter 2 that we read during worship this morning? If it's not, it's false. Where's forgiveness? How does forgiveness work? Who makes forgiveness possible in this worldview? And if it's not the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we have to recognize that. But in doing so, we have to avoid the mistake that the Ephesian church made. And this is where the faithful, enduring church of Jesus Christ is going to have a long lasting antiviral effect on our culture. A long lasting antiviral effect on our culture. This truth and love. So we mentioned what patience endurance requires of us. What else are we required to do? We love people because they all of them, all of us are humans made in the image of God and are of infinite worth to Him, and are sinners in need of grace. The kind of combination the church can live in right now becomes this powerful, long-lasting, antiviral for our culture right now. Because you see, friends, this worldview that is rising to the surface, that gains more and more cultural attention and cultural power, is a worldview that exists without love or grace. In fact, in a certain sense, it exists without forgiveness. Condemnation without forgiveness. And a worldview that can live without all of those things is a worldview that you and I not only have to resist, we have to push back against. Because love is at the center of our faith. John goes so far as to say in his epistles a few times God is love. So if the church is able to grab a hold of this powerful combination, then we become this thing in our culture that our culture is is struggling to find but needs to find right now. Every one of us, every one of us, and I mean literally those of us in this room, those of us watching this morning, we need Jesus. We need to know Him more. We don't need to know Him less. And everybody else needs to know Jesus for the same reasons, for salvation, for transformation, for change of life, for forgiveness of sins. Where culture wants to sow the seeds of hate among us, Christians refuse. And instead, we love. We show the love of God. We live the love of God. It is a subversive way of living in our culture right now. It is, as one author called it, a certain kind of divine conspiracy. Underneath all of that sound and fury going on in the surface of our culture right now should be a church that is walking in truth and love. Where culture wants to promote a false worldview that grounds your worth in all the wrong things, Christians stand up for the truth of our identity in Jesus Christ. These are the kinds of things that we do. When we figure out what it means for you and me, to live in truth, and to live in love at the same time. So Jesus says, if you have an ear, I need you to hear this. Listen to what the Spirit is saying to His church this morning. And then every one of these letters ends with a promise, ends with this incredible promise. Listen to this at the end of verse 7. To the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes, some of your translations will say, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. So this is Christ's promise. It's specifically given to the church at Ephesus. It's given to all of us who learn how to endure in this kind of way in truth and love. What God originally created What he originally intended, there in Genesis chapters 1 and 2... All of creation is put together, and He builds this garden. He puts Adam and Eve in the garden. They're made, both of them, in the image and the likeness of their Creator. And there is, in the middle of this garden, the tree of life, that as long as they are there in the garden walking with God, they can eat of this tree of life constantly. What God created and what God intended got separated or destroyed because of our rebellion and sin. But something interesting happens with the tree of life. Now, if you're into this kind of stuff, I would encourage you to track this down in Scripture. The tree of life shows up in only three books of the Bible. The first is Genesis, where it all begins, Christ's or God's relationship with his people there in the garden as they eat of the tree of life. The third book where the tree of life shows up is this one, the book of Revelation. So it's at the beginning of all things, and it's at the end of all things. The only other book in Scripture to mention the tree of life is the book of Proverbs. The wisdom that is the tree of life that is at work amongst us. And you can kind of track that down if you like. you go back to the book of Genesis, the tree of life given to Adam and Eve. They rebel against God, and, and the scene is, is sort of a, a famous, vibrant scene in our minds, if we know it. They're cast out of the garden, and God places his angel there at the garden with his sword to, to, uh, to sort of close the way back into the Garden of Eden. But what the text says is the angel is placed there with his sword to guard the tree of life we're actually barred from eating of the tree of life again until Jesus says, when you conquer and you enter eternity with me, it is entrance back into full and complete life, and I will let you eat from the tree of life. It is this beautiful image. What God created and intended, we broken our sin, but God makes possible again because of his work inside of our lives. Listen to how it shows up in Revelation 22, the very last chapter, verses 1 and 2 go like this. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, it's this crazy tree. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of this tree were for the healing of the nations. If you conquer, if you endure... I will grant that you eat from the tree of life again. And make no mistake, friends, we are brought into life with God and eternity with God because of what Jesus has done for us. Jesus has made this possible through his victory over death and the cross, and now you and I are commanded, don't let go. Endure, overcome, don't let go of Jesus Christ. There is no reason in this world today that is greater than Jesus Christ. There's no reason to let go of him. So the Spirit constantly says, overcome, endure, stay close to Jesus Christ. Friends, we're gonna see this over and over again inside of these seven letters, so I wanna make sure we hear this now so that it's in our heads as we walk through the rest of these letters. Our victory is only participation in the victory of Jesus Christ. That's where this book is headed. That's why you and I have the hope that we have. That's why you and I have access to the abundant life of Jesus Christ right now. Not because you and I are strong enough and wise enough to do these things, but because of the victory of Jesus Christ. So our victory is a participation in His. Friends, we can never let go of Jesus. Let's pray.